0: Lent is a time when we choose to go into the wilderness, when we strip ourselves of some of the stuff that we rely on in order to make space to re encounter the one, to meet the one, the only one who we can truly rely on. And this year it seems that Lent has come to us. It's not so much that we've gone into the wilderness but that the wilderness has come to us. Many things have been taken from us, like social media, people who we relied on, plans and hopes. Families have been divided. Many have spoken of how they've lost significant sums of money. And we face an uncertain economic and political future. It is a time of testing. It's a time of crisis. Crisis comes from the Greek word meaning judgment. It is a time of judgment, and we will either stand or we will fall. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is talking about the time when the people of Israel were led into the wilderness. They'd come out of slavery in Egypt, They'd gone through the Red Sea, which Paul treats here as a picture of baptism, of leaving the old life and going into the new life. But now, before they enter the Promised Land, they're in the wilderness. For them, it was a time of testing, of crisis. And Paul writes these verses as a warning to his listeners, to the Corinthian Christians, and as a warning to us as well because the people of Israel at the time failed the test. Verse 5 God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the wilderness. God had made his presence known to them very clearly. Paul talks about a cloud, a pillar of cloud that led them during the day and at night it became a pillar of fire. When the Egyptian army was chasing after them the pillar went in between the people of Israel and the Egyptian army. It separated them. In other words the pillar both guided them and protected them. Now I'm sure somebody who was there would have been able to give a scientific explanation for this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire, but the important thing, and for the people who had the eyes of faith and looked, they saw the presence of God with them, guarding and protecting them. And Paul talks about how they were baptised into Moses in the Red Sea. It's really interesting. You're baptized, he says, into someone. By going into the water with them, you become part of them. And Paul speaks of spiritual food and spiritual drink. The spiritual food was manna. This was this bread that appeared each morning on the ground, a bit like dew. And there was just enough for everyone. And the spiritual drink was the water which God provided for his people, which ran from the rock when Moses struck the rock with his staff. Moses described, sorry, Paul describes the rock as Christ. That's very rich with meaning and worth sort of really reflecting on. It was, you see, when Jesus was struck on the cross that the life-giving water of God, the Holy Spirit, was given. And yet, says Paul, even though God made his presence to the people of Israel so clear, they rebelled against him and their bodies were scattered over the wilderness. We're given a list of five things that they did. They set their hearts on evil. They were idolaters. When Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, and he was gone 40 days, they thought that Moses had disappeared, he'd abandoned them. So they made themselves a god in the image of a cow, in the image of a calf, and they worshipped it. They committed sexual immorality. They tested, and Paul's words here are again significant, they tested Christ by constantly forgetting what God had done for them, by doubting him and disobeying God's word. And they grumbled. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? It was good there. We had homes. We, uh, why have you made us wander in the wilderness? Why is the food that we get so awful? I think they were just teenage boys, actually, most of the wilderness. Because, to be totally honest, when our children went to school, we had three boys, and we used to say to them when they came back, what was school like? They said, mm. and then they suddenly said, oh, we had something for lunch. That was the one thing they used to tell us, what they had for lunch. Well, all that the people of Israel said was what they had for breakfast, lunch and dinner. They had manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, and they were complaining. And because they set their hearts on evil, on lies, remove the V from the word evil, and you get lie backwards. They set their hearts, they were controlled by fear, by putting themselves first. And because they made their own gods and then worshipped them, and because they abused each other's bodies and their own bodies, Because they refused to trust or obey God and because they could only see things from the me perspective, which is basically what grumbling is all about, their bodies were scattered over the wilderness. And Paul continues and says, these people are a warning for us. Now these things, he says, occurred as examples for us. We may feel we're in the wilderness. But God has not abandoned us. He is with us. We have signs of his presence. We're part of one body. We were baptized not into Moses but into Jesus. And in Jesus we have each other. We're part of him. We're part of each other. We have the gifts of bread and wine, spiritual food and drink. And as we receive the bread and wine by faith, So we both receive Jesus and become part of Jesus. We have the Word of God, the Bible. I've been a cross Christian, a follower of Jesus, for all of my life. But it was only when I was uh, 18 and I started to seriously read and study the Bible as the Word of God that I began to experience the power of God working in me, changing me and through me. And we have the token of the Holy Spirit who helps us to pray, to call out to God, to call God our Father. Many of us can look back at moments when we can say that we really knew God to be there with us. I was talking last week with a man from Marley Vosnesiensky Church, that way, and um, uh, he was telling me uh, how how he came to faith. He told me how after he had left the army, he had a very physical encounter experience with the risen Lord Jesus, with Jesus coming to him. By the way, when you do have encounters like that, When prayers are answered in an astonishing way, when there is no other explanation apart from God, do write that down somewhere and occasionally revisit what you have written because we forget and thank God for those times. There may not be many. The people of Israel only crossed the Red Sea once. Jesus rose from the dead only once. But those few times are enough. Before we came, we decided to come here. and This is really, really little, but it made a big impact on us. Alison was very uncertain. She prayed on Easter Sunday morning, please God, show me something today from Russia. And at church, one lady who was Russian and only came to church very occasionally, came up to her with a Russian Easter egg and said, Alison, this is for you, from Russia. As she said afterwards, it was the exact words that she'd used in her prayer. It's little things like that which often happen when we're prepared to take a step of faith, to move into the wilderness, or to embrace the wilderness, trusting God, which can be such strong indicators of the presence of God with us. But even though we have those signs, we still, doesn't stop us walking away from God it doesn't prevent us from setting our hearts on evil doing that which is wrong because we're controlled by fear or hatred or lust or the desire for revenge it doesn't prevent us from turning things even good things which God has made and which were his gifts to us into our own little gods into the things that control our lives that is idolatry It doesn't prevent us from being controlled by our sexual instincts and desires rather than our hearts and end up doing that which shames us and shames others. It doesn't prevent us from testing Christ, deliberately and persistently disobeying him, presuming on his love, or at least how we define his love, his forgiveness and endless patience. That's what these verses warn us against doing. It doesn't prevent us from grumbling. Now that might seem so minor in comparison to all the others that we've just listed, but watch it if you or I grumble. It was said when warships were made of wood and not iron, that more English ships were sunk by worms than by enemy action. Grumbling is the worm which destroys. It eats us from the inside. It prevents us from seeing God in anything or anyone. It prevents us from seeing the roses and all we see are the thorns. It strips us of the ability to give thanks or to praise. Grumbling are the worms which will eventually sink us. They will drop us into the pit of self-pity, self-justification and the assumption that the world was made to rotate around me and my petty desires. And when that happens, our faith is shipwrecked and we are broken. There are sadly many spiritual corpses scattered over the wilderness. But the good news of 1 Corinthians 10 is that it does not need to be like that. We're to guard, it says, against complacency. I often quote in this context the story of Gordon MacDonald, a well-known Christian author and pastor. He was asked on one occasion how the devil would attack him. He answered in all integrity, I don't know, but I do know it will not be through my personal life. Within a year, he was having an affair with his secretary. He himself wrote about it in a book called Rebuilding Your Broken World. And he warns others and he warns himself again, be very, very careful when you think that you stand. I think of people who go to the 12-step groups, which we have, many we have here in church. They will never, for instance, say, if they go to AA Alcoholics Anonymous, or Anonymous, that they are a healed alcoholic. They will always say that they are a recovering alcoholic, and they know there is no room for complacency. And we must never, ever, ever think that we are there or think that we have got it, because that is just, what do they say? Pride comes before a fall. But also we do not need to give in to despair. I occasionally visit, when I can, an Orthodox monastery in Essex. The former abbot was a disciple of a starrett called Father Silouan. Very early on in his Christian life, Siloan was struggling with a particular sin, and he had a vision of God. And in this vision, God said to him these words, set your mind on hell, but do not despair. Set your mind on hell, but do not despair. Now that is not the only way to survive the traffic in Moscow. I would also suggest that it is the only way to defeat sin and to live this passage. Set your mind on hell. Don't tell me you don't believe in hell. Most of us will have glimpsed hell. At some point in life we will have looked into, hungover, maybe even have dropped into that pit of utter meaninglessness, hopelessness, and despair. And hell is my destiny, because hell is my choice. I constantly, despite myself, choose evil and petty idols and lust and rebellion and grumbling over against love and obedience and life. And I am powerless to save myself. I cannot stand. But Star Siloan did not just say, set your mind on hell. He said, set your mind on hell, but do not despair. Why? Well, we do not need to end up as a spiritual corpse laid somewhere in the wilderness. We have this astonishing promise here in 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way out. I know that this is a hard time, a time of crisis, a time of judgment. What I'm about to say may sound glib, and in my own experience, it is so hard to practice. But we have to hold on to the fact that whatever temptation, whatever test we're facing, there is a way out, and we need to look for the way out. It may not be instantaneous. It will require a daily dying to ourselves. There will be many failures, many times when we give in. It will call for a constant crying out to God to have mercy on us. It will involve great perseverance. It may involve formal confession. It will almost certainly involve the prayer and support of our Christian brothers and sisters. We're not on our own in this but there is a way out. We have a God who is with us and who loves us. We have a God who hates sin, who's not prepared to let sin win. We have a savior who has been to the depths of hell and back. He has been there for us so that we do not need to go there. He has the will to save us and he has the power to save us. He is the only one who we can rely on, and we place ourselves in his hands. Set your minds on hell, but do, do, do not despair. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Our Father God, please, would you help us to stand firm and to be faithful. And in the time of shaking, in the time of testing, in the wilderness time, may we know your presence with us and your power to help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.